Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, we're going to lead off talking about some of the major stories of the past week. The lead story today concerns the fact that, well, a lot of you are throwing away your masks. A lot of you are saying that we're entering the post-COVID era. The worst is over. But is it really? Is it premature to throw away these masks? Because now, some scientists, not all, but some scientists are beginning to ring the alarm bell, saying that there's a new mutant. In fact, new mutations of the Omicron BA2 variety, mutations within mutations which mutations, which could be more dangerous than the previous ones. Could this be a new measles-type epidemic? Well, we'll find out. And then moving on, we're going to talk about yet another series of classified documents being released to the public. 1,500 pages concerning UFOs, alien encounters, unwanted pregnancies. You name it, it's in there. 1,500 pages of raw, unfiltered documents talking about how the Pentagon wanted to nuke the moon. That is, drop hydrogen bombs on the moon to drill a hole right through the moon itself. We're talking about people that have claimed to have been in the exhaust of a flying saucer and have suffered radiation burns. And women that claim there were unwanted pregnancies as a consequence of encounters with alien life forms. Well, we'll talk about some of these things as well. But also the big news is the United States Congress, after a 50-year gap, so this is the second time in 50 years that the United States Congress has held hearings about UFOs and UAPs. And the question is, have we found anything new concerning this, given the fact that Navy pilots have given us hours, hours of videotapes documenting strange things happening in the atmosphere? For the first time, we actually have tangible evidence, evidence that is reproducible, testable, falsifiable, maybe. We'll talk about this in exploration. And this, of course, in turn has given rise to a new science called exobiology. And we'll say a few things about the possibility of life in outer space. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. Our lead story today concerns what's happening with the Omicron virus. Just when you thought that we're over the hump, just when you thought you can throw away all those masks, just when you thought we were in the post-COVID era, scientists are still ringing some alarm bells. It turns out that in the early stages of the epidemic, scientists thought that the mutation rate of the COVID virus, the alpha virus, was rather slow. And therefore, once we have a vaccine, then that's it. Game over. However, we now realize that the Omicron virus has mutated from alpha to beta to gamma to delta and now to Omicron. And now Omicron has mutated to the BA2. And now this is the new result. BA2 is mutating much faster than anyone previously expected. In fact, some people are speculating now that it could be as contagious as measles, which is over 90% infectious. The danger is that if the virus is also lethal, then we could begin to reverse some of the gains that we made over the past year. 
Well, we'll wait and see. So far, we're taking a look-and-see attitude, but geneticists who have sequenced the genes of the COVID Omicron BA2 variety are shocked that it is mutating faster than we expected. So what's the upshot of all this? Don't throw away your masks. We're not over the hump yet. In fact, some people are saying that we need an entirely new vaccine, a new vaccine that could take into account all the variations of Omicron so that we can meet this next challenge coming at us from the coronavirus. And also news from the government. The government has an agency which, believe it or not, looks into all the claims of people that have been abducted by flying saucers and what have you. And now, because of the Freedom of Information Act, journalists have been able to get 1,500 pages from the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. That's a mouthful, or the AATIP for short. From 2007 to 2012, it looked at all sorts of claims about visitation from aliens from outer space. Now here, we're not talking about flying saucers. We're not talking about UAPs. No, we're talking about actual encounters, people that have claimed to have direct contact with intelligent life from outer space. And what have they found? Well, 1,500 pages of unfiltered, totally unfiltered documents, some of it outrageous, some of it cockamamie, but hey, some of it you have to take seriously. One proposal was to nuke the moon. That's right, believe it or not, there were some people that wanted to drill a hole right through the core of the moon. Now, we can't do that for the Earth. We can just penetrate just a few miles from the surface of the Earth. But there they were, talking about using hydrogen bombs to drill a hole right through the center of the moon. And why? To look for a mythical element, a mythical metal that doesn't exist, apparently, but is supposed to be 100,000 times stronger than steel, but weighs just as much. That's a lot of money and a lot of expertise on an experiment for which there's no experimental justification. But there it is in the study. Some scientists have looked at what it would take to drill a hole right through the moon with nuclear weapons to find a substance for which we have no identifiable chemistry. A substance that's supposed to be 100,000 times stronger than steel, but weighs the same. Well, this and other cockamamie ideas are in this report. Another one is to harness warp drive. This is straight out of Star Trek. They want to use negative energy. They want to create a wormhole through space and time. Now, look, if you use Einstein's equations, which we think are the most advanced ways of looking at wormholes and things like that, you realize that wormholes may be possible, but the energy, the raw energy necessary to create one is comparable to that of a star, a black hole a very big star, 10 to 50 times bigger than our sun. So don't expect any alien civilization to suddenly say, oh, let's let's create a wormhole and visit the Earth today. It doesn't work like that. But there it is, a whole section of this report looking at people that claim that the aliens have warp drive, they can use negative energy, and they can create wormholes through space and time. Another section of this 1,500-page report talks about radiation burns. People that have had radiation burns because, well, 
radiation from the exhaust of a flying saucer or other encounters with UFOs, not to mention that there are also eyewitness accounts of people that got, well, pregnant as a consequence of interactions with aliens. Now, of course, we have to look at this carefully. If the aliens are there, then their DNA is probably going to be completely different from our DNA, and the probability of mixing these two sets of DNA is about zero. However, there it is in the report, and it can't be dismissed immediately, but you have to be a little bit skeptical about some of these things in the report. So the report is unfiltered, is raw. People that simply have a grudge or some kind of strange scheme of way of looking at the world, their reports are there. These are not peer-reviewed documents for publication. This is the raw material from what the United States government gets when you ask people, have you ever been visited by aliens from outer space? Now, also, this week, we had hearings from the United States Congress. We had distinguished lawmakers ask intelligent questions to scientists and to bureaucrats. What's out there? You see, 50 years ago, we had something called Project Blue Book. It was the first serious attempt to look at all the 12,000 reports of encounters with strange objects in the sky. That was 50 years ago. But to tell you the truth, most of these reports were from single eyewitnesses. That is, somebody said, I saw something in the sky. It was shiny. It was blinking. But hey, it was one person, maybe, maybe they not. Maybe it was an optical illusion. Maybe they were drunk that day. It's hearsay. But the bulk of the reports 12,000 years ago were like that. They saw something in the sky. Well, times have changed. Because you see, the gold standard for something like this is multiple sightings by multiple modes. That's the gold standard. In other words, not just one, but two, three, more people watching something, and it's being tracked. Tracked not just by visual eyesight, but tracked by infrared sensors, by uh, radio telescopes, by radar, independent multiple modes of observing these objects in the sky. Well, that's what we have now. Hours of videotapes from the United States Navy. Since the year 2000 or so, there have been hundreds of encounters with strange things in the sky for which we have videotapes. Therefore, we physicists have had a field day going frame by frame through some of this material. And this is what we found. First of all, how fast are these things moving? Well, we now have a calculation between Mach 5 and Mach 20. That is between 5 times and 20 times the speed of sound. And when they zigzag and maneuver, how much g-forces are created inside these things as they make a sharp u-turn? And the answer is several hundred times the force of gravity. In other words, no human, no human made out of flesh and bones can withstand the g-forces by these objects maneuvering in space. And what else can they do? They can accelerate without causing a sonic boom. Usually when you break the sound barrier, you create a sonic boom because you create a shock wave going through the air. No sonic boom. Next, these objects can go underwater. 
I mean, who would have thought? But there we have uh, Navy pilots photographing this thing, showing that there is a flying saucer in the ocean beneath them. And so perhaps they have a base in the ocean someplace to, to avoid the prying eyes of curious humans. Who knows? So we have a situation where these things can make gyrations that we cannot make with our most advanced aircraft. Think about it for a moment. We have stealth bombers. We have missiles. But these things execute maneuvers that we cannot approach. Now, to be fair, the Russians are now fielding and actually using in warfare hypersonic drones. In principle, they can go up to Mach 20. But the Russians have now given some data concerning the hypersonic drones that are being used in the Ukraine. Okay, so now we have some numbers that we can compare with the numbers that we see here. First of all, these cruise missiles and hypersonic drones, they can travel at about Mach 4. But according to the Russian press release, they can go up to Mach 16. So in other words, in terms of the sheer velocity, they can mimic the velocity of some of these drones. However, maneuvering, creating these gyrations that we see these, uh, these objects performing, no, the Russians can't do that. However, their hypersonic drones will maneuver to a degree. In fact, that's the whole point. The whole point of a hypersonic drone is to evade a Star Wars shield fielded by the United States. You see, if a missile is, let's say, 10 minutes from impact, you want to be able to maneuver it so that anyone who tries to shoot it down would miss as a consequence. That's the whole point <clears throat> of creating hypersonic drones to evade a Star Wars shield. Well, apparently the Russians claim that they can do that. That is, they can maneuver their missiles. However, it's not so easy. The United States, two years ago, abandoned is hypersonic drone program. Because when you maneuver, make a left turn, right turn, oftentimes you spiral out of control and your missile crashes. So that's why two years ago, the United States military abandoned its hypersonic drone program. But with the announcement by Vladimir Putin that the Russians are fielding, not just testing, but fielding these weapons, the United States says, oops, I guess we better catch up and have our own hypersonic drone program. But you see, this is still rather experimental. The Chinese also, by the way, have also announced that they are looking into hypersonic weapons at all, uh, also. But you have to realize that these reports to UFOs, they go back decades. They go back uh, even up to World War II and beyond. And so in other words, this technology is cutting edge technology on the part of the Russians, the United States, and the Chinese. But if these hypersonic drones are really flying in out of space, they've been doing that for decades. In other words, as one Pentagon official said, quote, they're not ours, unquote. And how many sightings are there we're talking about? One or two? Nope, 144. The military, as of just a few months ago, announced that they were looking at 144 incidences where seasoned pilots on videotape have photographed something up there. And of them, only one, only one was debunked as a weather balloon. We still have 143 devices or things up there for which we have no inkling what they are. Now, that was last year. Since last year, 
there, the number of sightings is 400. So there are 400 sightings by military pilots of something in the sky. Now realize that the total number of sightings by the military is many times that. In one report, it mentions the fact that sometimes for days, for days on end, they would notice these flying objects flying overhead. So this is not just a fluke. For days, they could see these things on, on radar. And again, not just radar, but visual sighting as well. And also near collisions. That's right. Forget about Roswell. We're talking about a military craft almost colliding with these UAPs. How many times? 11. 11 times the military has acknowledged the fact that they came very close to an, a collision with one of these objects. Well, then the next question is, of course, what are they? The hearings by the United States Congress did not reveal the best case estimate of what the military thinks is happening. The military gave five possibilities. One, of course, being anomalous weather patterns and things like that. Another one being the Russians or the Chinese are fielding these things. But number five was the most interesting. For number five, the military said, other. In other words, the possibility of an extraterrestrial origin. Now, the report didn't say that they were created by aliens from outer space. No, it just left it open to the possibility that there was something there. Now, critics have looked at this thing. Scientists have looked at these things. And so what has been the verdict of independent researchers? Well, so far there hasn't been any, but some preliminary statements have been made. One of them, the perhaps the strongest objection to these videotapes is the fact that maybe they are optical illusions. In other words, camera tricks of some sort. If you get a camera and look at a balloon and then move the camera left, right, left, right, and then look at the image, it really does look as if the balloon itself is zigzagging and not the camera. And so some people claim that the maneuverability of these objects is an illusion caused by the movement of the camera. Well, usually you can tell if the camera is moving by looking at the trees and the sky and the clouds to see which is moving, the camera or the weather balloon. Well, unfortunately, these, uh, these tapes are a very short duration. Uh, you can't study them under controlled situations. So at the present time, you can make a case either way because there's no background by which you can tell what is really stationary and what is really moving. What about the reports that they can travel up to Mach 20? In fact, they can drop 70,000 feet in just a few seconds, which is incredible. That's the velocity at which these things have been tracked by the Navy. Well, some critics have said the following. If there's a mosquito and it flies right in front of you, but you think for a moment that the mosquito is miles and miles away. Then, of course, the mosquito would be have to travel at hundreds of miles per hour. This is called the parallax effect. So an object near you that is moving left and right and flying around is just an ordinary mosquito flying in front of you. But if you assume for the moment that the distance between you and the mosquito is actually hundreds of miles, and you're looking at this object whizzing back and forth across hundreds of miles, then you would conclude that this object is breaking the sound barrier and is traveling at huge velocities. So an object close to you 
you might think is actually far away from you, in which case you would misjudge the velocity of this object. Well, of course, the way to disprove or prove this is to look at multiple sightings. Not just eyesight, which can be fooled, but to look at infrared images, look at optical images, look at radar images. And that has not been done for all these sightings. For many sightings, they have looked at it, not just eyesight, but radar as well, and that they think could rule out some of these optical illusions, but not all. So that's another possibility. Well, of course, there's the last possibility then. Maybe they're real. What about that? Well, if you talk to most physicists about whether or not these flying saucers could be real or not, real visitations from another planet, they would say, bah, humbug. The distance between stars is so great that it would take centuries, millennia for them to reach us. Just for us to go to Alpha Centauri, the nearest star, would take 70,000 years, traveling at 25,000 miles per hour, the escape velocity for the Saturn V rocket. 70,000 years at the maximum velocity that we can normally attain in outer space. So it's not practical. But you see, my own point of view in all of this is that we cannot assume that the aliens, if they're there, are only 100 years ahead of us. If they're 100 years ahead of us, then yeah, it would take thousands of years for them to reach us. But assume for the moment that they're a million years ahead of us. A million years. That's just a blink of an eye. The universe is 13.8 billion years old, we think. So what's a million years here or there? We're just beginning to rise up the technological ladder. Science is only about two or 300 years old. And what's to say, what's a civilization that's a million years more advanced than us, what technologies might they have? Well, take a look at the technologies we have today. We have two, we have the quantum theory and we have Einstein's theory. But you see, they begin to break down. Once you attain what is called the Planck energy, space and time become unstable. Now, of course, that's a huge energy. That's 10 to the 19 billion electron volts. That's a quadrillion times more powerful than the Large Hadron Collider based outside of Geneva, Switzerland, our most powerful machine. But let's say that the aliens are a few thousand years more advanced than us, which is nothing but a drop in the bucket. They may be able to attain the Planck energy on that time scale, growing exponentially fast, in which case space and time become unstable. And then some of those cockamamie ideas I mentioned in that report from the Pentagon, some of these ideas come into play, not for us, but for an advanced civilization, wormholes, dimensional gateways, compressed space, things that we would consider to be totally out of reach may come within the realm of possibility if you are that advanced. And then the question is, how advanced do you have to be to do this? Well, we physicists have looked at this question, and we think that in the near future, eventually we'll attain what is called type 1, type 2, or type 3 status. Type 1 status is maybe 100 years from now, and it's the energy that we get from the sun. In other words, they're planetary civilizations. They control the weather. They control volcanoes, earthquakes, anything terrestrial 
they control because they're type one. Then there's type two. They exhaust the energy of their home planet and then they begin to mine the entire sun as their domain. That's called type two, like the Federation of Planets in Star Trek. That would be an approximate type two civilization. Then there's type three, galactic. They roam the galactic space lanes. They play with black holes. Type three civilization like Star Wars. Star Wars or the Borg, a galactic civilization, would be an example of a type three civilization. Then the next question is, at what type would you have to be to have warp drive? That is, to exploit the instability of space-time by adding quantum effects and quantum corrections to Einstein's theory of gravity. Well, you can just get a sheet of paper and work out the numbers. They would have to be maybe 100,000, maybe a million years more advanced than us, to harness the Planck energy, perhaps to use the power of wormholes. Now, What's 100,000 years compared to the universe? The universe at 13 billion eight years old thinks nothing of just 100,000 years, but that's all it would take for a civilization to rise up this planetary scale. Well, you may say to yourself, couldn't they destroy themselves before then? Maybe these type three civilizations are rare. Well, that's possible. But you see, by the time they attain type two status, they are invulnerable. Nothing known to science can destroy a type two civilization. Comets and meteors can be deflected. Ice ages can be averted. Uh, they control all planetary catastrophes. And so they are immortal. Even if their sun dies and goes into a supernova, a type three civilization creates space arcs and simply leave their solar system and go to a neighboring solar system. And so it's within the realm of possibility that a type three civilization would be immortal. Unless they self-destruct, nothing known to science can destroy a type two or a type three civilization. Once they're out there, unless they blow themselves up, they're out there forever. Well, then the critics would say, well, if that's true, then where are they? I mean, why don't they land on the White House lawn and announce their existence? I mean, are they just peeping toms observing us? Do they consider us to be zoo animals and they're the zookeepers? Why don't they announce their existence? Well, I don't know. But let me just say one thing in passing. Some scientists think that they're out there and that we should deliberately make contact with them by advertising our existence to the aliens. Well, personally, I think it's a bad idea. Because remember what happened to Cortez when Cortez met Montezuma in Mexico? It wasn't pleasant. Montezuma thought that Cortez was a god and not a bloodthirsty pirate that wanted to loot the gold of the Aztecs. So a word to the wise. They could be out there. Who knows? Maybe they are behind some of these visitations. Or who knows? Maybe it's all an optical illusion. But why take the chance? Why take a chance of it advertising our existence to the aliens when we know nothing about their intentions and their level of technology? So in other words, in the short term, I should, I should think that we should hide our presence and not advertise our presence to the galaxy.
Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. You've been listening to Exploration Part 1. And go to my website to find out more about this program. mkaku.org is the website. mkaku.org. On Facebook, we have 5 million fans on Facebook. And I've written 5 New York Times bestsellers. The latest New York Times bestseller that I wrote is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Well, stay tuned now for the second half of exploration when we talk about life in the universe. How did it all begin? To exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. In the second part of exploration, we're going to bring on an exobiologist, Robert Hagen, author of the book Genesis, talking about the possibility of life throughout the universe. You know, on a starry night when you go outside, we can now get a rough estimate of how many planets there are. On average, every single star you see at night has a star going around it. That's an amazing number. Every single star, on average, has a planet going around it. Sometimes several planets. And some of them are in what is called the Goldilocks zone. Not too close to the sun, when the oceans are boiled. Not too far from the sun, when the oceans are freeze. But just right to have liquid water. And then from liquid water, we can get carbon chains to form spontaneously. These carbon chains can create carbohydrates and amino acids. And amino acids, in turn, are the building blocks of proteins. And hey, that's what we're made of, mainly. We are mainly made out of proteins, which in turn are made out of amino acid, which in turn have been found in outer space. That's right, distant gas clouds inside meteorites. We find amino acids, just like the amino acids that make up our body, meaning that Potentially, life could be plentiful throughout the universe. And then the next question that people ask is, if they're out there, what are they going to look like? Well, the short answer is, I don't know. But we can talk about the development of intelligent life on the Earth. What are the ingredients that made us intelligent? Well, first of all, we have the opposable thumb, which allows us to create tools, which allows us to create a civilization. So an opposable thumb or a tentacle or a claw is the first criterion to manipulate their environment. Second, eyesight. It helps to have the eyesight of a predator that is eyes to the front of your face because then you have stereo vision, the vision of a hunter. And hunters are smarter than prey and prey have eyes to the side of their face like bunny rabbits. You know the expression, dumb bunny and smart as a fox? Well, there's some logic there because predators have to plan. They have to ambush. They have to have deceit. They have to look at all sorts of options and alternatives if the prey starts to run. 
If you are prey, on the other hand, all you have to do is run when the tiger comes at you. And then language. You know, the average kid learns over a word a day, a word a day. So by the time the kid is just a few years old, already they have hundreds of words in their vocabulary. And a grown person may have several thousand words in their vocabulary. With language comes the ability to plan ahead, to impart knowledge to other people, to hand down knowledge generation to generation. And hey, that's about it. So some kind of eyesight, preferably stereo eyesight, like the eyesight of a hunter, some opposable thumb or some grasping implement, and some way to communicate. That's the ingredients for intelligence. And then let's ask the next question. How many animals on the earth excel in all three? And then you begin to realize, hey, we're the only ones. I mean, the apes come close, but then again, we are intelligent apes. But take a look at the octopus. It has eight tentacles, but it has no language that we know of. And uh, it doesn't have all the senses that we have. And so you begin to realize that, hey, apes, and especially us, the intelligent apes, are perhaps the most likely candidate to become the dominant species on the Earth. Well, once again, with us today is Robert Hagen. He's an astrobiologist. And he's studied this question about life in the universe. And he's the author of the book, Genesis. first special guest today is Dr. Robert Hagen of the Carnegie Institution outside Washington, D.C. He's an astrobiologist, author of the new book, Genesis, and we are talking about how the first spark of life began on the planet Earth about three and a half billion years ago. The first question for you is, how did you first get interested in science as a youth? Oh, man, I was so excited about nature when I was young. We had a house in Cleveland, Ohio, that backed onto a swamp. And my brother and I would go tramping back, and we'd collect butterflies, and we'd collect frogs, and we'd collect crayfish. And at night, I loved looking up at the sky and the stars. And so my parents bought me a telescope. And the first one was really small, but then I got larger and larger telescopes and ended up building my own. So I loved looking at the sky, and Saturn was my favorite. So nature just turned me on when I was... In high school, I moved to northern New Jersey, and northern New Jersey is a just a gold mine for minerals. They're famous mineral localities, and I had a teacher who pointed me in the direction and said, go to Franklin, New Jersey, go to Patterson, New Jersey, collecting minerals, and that's what really got me into mineralogy, which is my main field right through college. Okay. Now, you are an expert in an area that is not familiar to the average person, and that is something called astrobiology. So what is astrobiology? Oh, astrobiology is one of the most amazing new integrated fields in science. It's the study of the origin of life, the distribution of life in the universe, and also discusses what the future of life might be in the universe. This is a field that has been 
brought to life by major new funding through NASA and the NASA Astrobiology Institute, which is based at the Ames Research Center in California. Okay, so your book is entitled Genesis, The Scientific Quest for Life's Origin. Let's begin now in the year 1953 uh, with an experiment done by a graduate student uh, under the direction of his advisor uh, by the name of Stanley Miller. Could you tell us a little bit about that experiment and how that led to a paradigm shift with regards to how we view Genesis? Boy, Professor, what a transformation that was. Stanley Miller young 23-year-old graduate student at the University of Chicago. His mentor was Harold Urey, who had won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of deuterium, the heavy hydrogen isotope of heavy water. So Urey was incredibly famous. Miller was unknown. Miller came to Urey and said, I want to try an experiment to make the molecules of life from nothing more than a primitive atmosphere. Now, Urey had proposed the primitive atmosphere consisted of hydrogen, methane, which is the natural gas you burn on your stove, and ammonia, that's the strong-smelling chemical from ammonia cleaners. And he mixed those together with water and just ran electric sparks through a piece of glassware. And lo and behold, in just two or three days, that clear, colorless solution began turning shades of pink and then brown and then black gunk started getting deposited on the sides of the glassware. Miller had made a whole range of organic molecules that were basic building blocks of life. The amino acids that make our proteins, the sugars that make our carbohydrates, all sorts of molecules that form cell membranes called lipids. And not only that, a few of the bases that are called, these are the molecules that are key components of DNA and RNA. Many of the most fundamental building blocks of life just appeared out of a simple primitive atmosphere and sparks like lightning. Okay, so let's back up a bit. Uh, what we're talking about is getting a flask with horrible chemicals like ammonia, methane, hydrogen, sending a spark through it, uh, essentially replicating what they thought was the early atmosphere of the Earth bombarded by X-rays and lightning bolts and so on and so forth. And bingo, out of that came the building blocks of proteins, amino acids. So what was the reaction of the scientific community, which before that experiment uh, was really um, basically had no theory as to how organic chemicals could form out of nothing? It's true. This was a bombshell. The scientific community looked at this and said, wow, this must be how life originated. If in just a couple of days you can go from a simple atmosphere to all these building blocks of life, then given millions of years, the early ocean would just have been chock-a-block full of all kinds of organic molecules. And that was what led to this idea of the primordial soup, an early broth of just the right building blocks for life. So people thought, gee, it's just going to be a matter of 10 or 20 years and we'll know everything there is to know about the origin of life. Of course, that was a little overly optimistic. It's, it's taken us a lot longer and we're still a long way from knowing but this was the first experiment, the seminal experiment that set us on the path to believing that there is a chemical origin of life going from the simplicity of a geochemical world to the complexity of the biochemical world. Okay, so back in the 50s, they thought that the early atmosphere of the Earth was a hostile brew of ammonia, methane, hydrogen, and things like that. However, today, we're not so sure. That's right. Uh, today, many groups have proposed a different scenario uh, for the formation of life on the Earth, very similar, of course, to what uh, Miller and Urey had, but with a different chemical composition of the soup. 
Uh, what is now the leading theory as to what the atmosphere and the oceans looked like back then? Well, the, the one thing about the atmosphere is that Yuri's idea of an atmosphere with hydrogen and methane is much to what's called reducing. We think that it was a much more chemically neutral atmosphere, including things like nitrogen, the dinitrogen gas that makes up most of our atmosphere today, perhaps some CO2, uh, perhaps uh, other minor components like carbon monoxide, maybe a little bit of methane, maybe some hydrogen, but not as chemically reactive as the atmosphere that Miller proposed. Nevertheless, when you put sparks through any of those atmospheres, you still get very interesting products. So the basic concept of the Miller-Urey experiment is certainly valid. But there are other environments, as you suggest. Okay. Now, um, the Alvin submarine, uh, which was used to probe the Titanic riding on the bottom of the ocean, and also to retrieve a hydrogen bomb uh, dropped off the coast of Palomar, Spain, uh, back in the 1950s, uh, was also used to investigate what are called volcano vents. And some people say that perhaps volcano vents is where life got started. It's one theory, but could you elaborate on that theory? Yeah, the idea here is that life requires a couple of simple ingredients. It requires water, some kind of water-rich environment. It involves, it requires energy of some kind. Now, Miller said lightning, other people say sunlight, but you also have the energy from the Earth's inner heat, and you require carbon and other carbon-based compounds, what are called organic molecules. Turns out one of the most exciting environments on Earth, where all three of those ingredients come together, are the deep ocean vents, the hydrothermal vents, or the black smokers, as they're sometimes called, on the bottom of the ocean. And these were discovered in the late 1970s by, this, by scientists diving in the submersible Alvin off the Pacific coast. Completely unexpected to find not just these hydrothermal vents, these undersea smokers, if you will, with, with all sorts of mineral-rich hot fluids coming out, but to find living communities far, far below the influence of the sun, where it's totally dark all the time, and yet life thrives because of all that energy coming out of the ocean floor. Now, when we talk about energy, uh, we realize that we mammals get our energy by eating plants. So we mammals could not have been the first form of life on the Earth. But plants, in turn, get their uh, energy from sunlight in a very complicated process called photosynthesis, which also could not have been the original energy-generating device because it's very complicated. And we're talking about creating life from nothing almost. So you're saying essentially that the energy supply could have been uh, this very caustic environment on the bottom of the ocean? That's the theory, and here's why people think that might be so. In our bodies, the energy for example, from plants or from sunlight, is converted through a process called oxidation-reduction reactions. These are reactions just like that occur in a battery, your flashlight batteries. You're basically transferring electrons from one group of chemicals to another. And that exact same process occurs deep on the ocean floor because very, what are called reducing fluids, come out from the, below the ocean surface, and they hit very oxidizing water in the ocean. And that couple, the oxidation and the reduction together, causes chemical reactions, just like in a battery, just like in your body. That's what we think the very first energy for life was, just like a battery driven by the Earth. Okay. Now, the astronomer Fred Hoyle 
had a different theory. In fact, he was quite the contrarian uh, within uh, cosmological circles. And he said the following, that the Earth is four and a half billion years old, roughly speaking, and during the first billion years was the age of asteroids and meteors, constant bombardment by debris from outer space for about a billion years. We see that on the moon even today. And as a consequence, if life formed in the oceans, the oceans would have boiled off. And therefore, life could not have gotten started within the first billion years. So after the age of meteors ends, boom, bingo, life gets started very soon. So he says this means that life could not have started on the Earth. It came from outer space in the form of spores. So he called this the panspermia theory. But what are your thoughts about the panspermia theory? Well, at first glance, it sounds like a pretty crackpot idea, you know, life being seeded from outer space. But a lot of scientists are now taking this very seriously. I think there are two possibilities. One is that life is a cosmic imperative. It arises everywhere, and it arises very quickly. I've heard scientists say life comes about in a million years or a thousand years. There's one very famous scientist in the field who even says it takes two weeks. Well, if that's true, then life would have arisen on Earth, and there's no problem. But what if life does take hundreds of millions of years? We have a planetary neighbor, Mars, that was habitable long before Earth, much less in the way of bombardment by meteorites, much more benign in terms of its temperature early on, and it had oceans or lakes. We now know that from these recent discoveries by NASA. So Mars was habitable hundreds of millions of years before Earth. It's very possible that life arose on Mars, and then there's this amazing mechanism. If Mars gets hit by a modest-sized asteroid, say something that's 10 or 20 or 30 kilometers across, there will be, it's been shown, there'll be rocks thrown up into space, and those rocks will be relatively unheated, relatively unstressed. They could contain microbes, and those microbes could then be brought to Earth by Mars meteorites. So, there are a whole group of scientists that are giving very serious consideration to the idea that all life on Earth is Mars life, because Mars was habitable earlier. And we may know that if in the next decade or two when we go to Mars, when we look specifically for life, we may find Earth-like life or fossils of Earth-like life on Mars that represent our ancestors. So if you want to see a Martian, you should simply look in a mirror. That's possible. Now, let me ask you a question that's bothered me for a long time, and that is the Earth is roughly 4.5 billion years old, but there's only one DNA molecule, rearranged in different ways, of course, but there's only one DNA. It has ATCG as the building blocks, nucleic acids. That's why we can eat anything on the Earth. We can eat sea urchins, we can eat insects, we can eat plants, even though we're separated by a tremendous evolutionary distance because we're all made out of the same molecule. Now, if the Earth is 4.5 billion years old and life gets started pretty quickly, then how come it didn't start again with another DNA and again and again? Why don't we see different DNAs? We only see ATCG. We only see a certain set of amino acids, and that's it. We've had now not just a few hundred million years, but we've had three and a half billion years of quiet oceans with no meteor impacts to speak of. So why don't we have many DNAs? Boy, Professor, you know, that's such a great question, and a lot of us are asking the question in this way. Is the chemistry that we see in life today inevitable? Or are there lots of alternative pathways? Well, if there are alternative pathways, why don't we see them? And the explanation that's most often given is that 
life was a competition. And once that first successful self-replicating cell with all of its proteins and DNA, that very efficient, very powerful mechanism, once that cell got started, then it divided in a flash. You know, microbes can divide in less than an hour. So you had one, then two, then four, then eight. And in a matter of weeks, the whole earth was populated by that extremely successful self-replicating cell. And that cell ate everything else. You didn't have a chance. If you weren't the first on the block to know how to live and know how to reproduce, then you were going to get eaten because you were food. Uh, well, let me ask you a question then. Uh, food depends on proteins. Uh, proteins, in turn, depend upon a template, that is DNA template, to create the protein. But there are many proteins that nature has not used. Uh, there are many proteins that you can create that nature has not even thought of. So uh, why didn't another DNA get off the ground that was uneatable, unedible, that it was based on proteins that simply cannot be digested by our DNA, and it's not based on ATCG, the four nucleic acids, but it's based on a different set, uh, you know, PQRST or whatever, and it creates proteins that are undigestible by our cells, and therefore the two life forms should coexist. What are your thoughts? Well, I think partly that life has been very careful in the molecules it selects. For example, RNA uses ribose. DNA uses deoxyribose. Why those particular sugars? These are sugars with five carbon atoms, and there are dozens of different sugars with five carbon atoms. Why those? Well, it turns out there's actually a, an advantage to those molecules because of their particular shape, and people have shown that if you try to use other molecules, they don't work. So to a certain extent, the molecules that life uses are the best molecules for the job. But also, I think life is incredibly good at taking various other potential molecules and eating them. It's just amazing how life has used all different kinds. Anything in this environment that has energy, life has learned to eat. And I think it's just once you get one kind of life established, it's really hard to get a second competitive system going. It's sort of like the ultimate monopoly. You, you can imagine uh, some company makes the best car, the best computer, and other companies try to get started. But if that first company is so huge and so large, it just swallows up the competition and nothing else to get going. Sort of like the diamond monopoly of De Beers. You know, there's never been another big company making diamonds because De Beers buys them all up and swallows up the competition. Well, the reason I ask you this is because in science fiction movies, we always see aliens from outer space that want some very specific things. First of all, they want to eat us, meaning that they can digest our proteins, which I find remarkable. Second of all, they're going to want to mate with us, in which case they have basically the same DNA as us, literally. So they can interchange uh, DNA sequences with us. And I find this rather impossible. But what you're saying is that in some sense, DNA really is preferable. And that maybe when aliens from outer space land on the Earth, they're going to have DNA which is very similar to ours. Is that what you're saying? I think it's possible that some aspect of biochemistry will be very, very similar, maybe even DNA and RNA. But I think there will be very important differences. For one thing, we have what's called the genetic code. And that basically are sets of three genetic letters that match up to different amino acids, the building blocks of protein. I think that code may be wildly different if, even if it's there is a code on other worlds that it would be very different from ours, so I can't imagine there being that kind of unity. So there's some chance events, some chance chemical events in the origin of life, but I think there are also some aspects of origins that are going to be very similar 
from world to world. Okay, well, if you say that, if another DNA got off the ground, and our DNA basically ate up that DNA, then what happens when alien DNA reaches the Earth? Will our DNA consume molecule for molecule their DNA, or vice versa? Perhaps their DNA will consume ours. Well, that's a real good question. It depends on the building block molecules. I can imagine alien DNA. I can imagine alien proteins that are totally poisonous to us and vice versa. It's also very possible that life on other worlds started with an opposite handedness. There is a, a very curious characteristic of life on Earth that all of the sugar molecules used in DNA and RNA are called right-handed. All the amino acids used in proteins are what are called left-handed. So there are mirror image molecules that our bodies can't use. In fact, that's one of, for dieting. There's a new product out. You can buy left-handed sugars, which taste sweet, but the body can't digest them. So this is one kind of artificial sweetener, which gives you no calories. It's a great invention. It's a great idea. So if there were an alien life form that happened to be reversed, and they used left-handed sugars and right-handed amino acids, then they couldn't eat us, we couldn't eat them. I think we'd probably get along. Okay. Now let's get back to the Miller experiment, because there's a huge gap that we left unfilled. Miller showed that amino acids, in some sense, are for free. We see them in nebulas in outer space. We see them in the cores of meteors from outer space. Uh, amino acids are out there in outer space. However, DNA is extremely complicated. If you look at a DNA molecule, you say to yourself, oh my God, look at that thing. And it would have taken an awful long time for Miller to get a DNA molecule off the ground. If he had done his experiment for maybe a billion years in that little test tube, then maybe he would have gotten one DNA molecule off the ground. So there's missing steps now. So some people say that before DNA, there was RNA. And before RNA, there was a even more primitive structures even before RNA. So what do we know about the gap between the amino acids that are for free that we see in the Miller experiment, and RNA and DNA? This is probably the single biggest uncertainty in question, but there's so many great ideas out there. For one thing, as you say, RNA is a very complicated molecule. It's hard to imagine how it was synthesized from scratch in a prebiotic soup. Mineral surfaces may have helped. There are some minerals that attract ribose. There are some minerals that attract the bases. Um, but there are other neat ideas out there. In the book... Genesis, I describe an experiment by a person at our laboratory, a guy named Nick Platts, who realized that you could build up an RNA-like molecule from very, very simple building blocks, little cyclical molecules, the kinds of things that are produced when diesel exhaust burns or, or when you have a sooty fire. That soot itself, if you put it in water under just the right circumstances, will form tiny little stacks of molecules. And those stacks, if they're in just the right environment, will attract the bases, the four letters A, T, C, and G of DNA. And those bases can line up on top of each other, and you can actually make a RNA-like molecule from scratch on the primitive Earth. Now, it's very possible, I think, that this is the sort of intermediate step where you build something that's simple from simple building blocks, and that mimics what's going to become more and more complex. You add layers of complexity, gradual, one step at a time. So Nick Platt's idea is very, very powerful, um, and, and it's now being studied experimentally. That's the kind of thing people look for. You go from simplicity 
to complexity through a process known as emergence. Now, if you go back, back, way back into the past, and what do we know about the most primitive DNA or RNA on the Earth? Uh, Professor, that's a wonderful question because it has to do with what are essentially the most primitive biochemical features. What are the chemical fossils that we find in modern life that point to the earliest life? And I think the conclusion is unambiguous. There are a few chemical pathways that are buried in every single living thing. One of those is RNA. The ability for RNA not only to store information and pass it on from one generation to the next, but also for RNA to improve or catalyze certain reactions. Another is a cycle of what is known as metabolism, that is taking energy and atoms from the surrounding and building up new molecules. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our special guest today was Dr. Robert Hagen, author of the book Genesis, and you've been listening to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. Every week, we talk about the cutting edge of science and go to my website to find out more about what I do. The website is mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. Good day. <laughs>